when my three oldest boys were, were fairly young, Jordan, I think, was about nine. That would have made Jeremy seven and a half to eight, depending on the time of the year. And uh, Luke would have been about five or six, somewhere in that vicinity. They came home one day from having been playing out in the neighborhood, and they're all enthusiastic and excited, and they're telling me about this, this event that they were doing. They had been throwing tomatoes at the backside of somebody's garage. You know, and, and the description, as you can imagine, was just vivid, you know? Just big red splotches everywhere. And, and they'd been having a great time. And, and I'm, I'm listening to the enthusiasm. And so then I think to myself, well, I wonder where they got those tomatoes. So I asked. And Jordan says, very matter-of-factly, oh, we got them out of a garden from a guy who lives a couple houses down. Oh. So... You took tomatoes from a man's garden down the street and you traveled over to your friend's house and began to check those tomatoes at the garage of the neighbor who lives behind them. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh, good, good, son. So, so that means that, that you stole those tomatoes. Not to mention making a mess of the neighbor's garage. Jordan says, what do you mean? He said, well, you took tomatoes that didn't belong to you, so you stole them. Jordan looks at me in all seriousness and says, and I quote, so that's what stealing is. The pastor and his wife had done a great job of education for those boys. Oh my goodness. So here we are this morning at commandment number eight in our journey through the ten. And we are learning, I hope, perhaps more than my sons, that these commandments, these rules are in fact, we've said it often, paths for life. And... um, that, that sense in all of us that we know exists from time to time kind of raises its ugly head. You know, that resistance to rules, that resistance to commandments, that this is the way you should do things. And, and my encouragement to you all along has been, these are coming from the heart of a God who created us, who knows us better than we know ourselves They are, in fact, statements of love and grace. They are life-giving for us. So we've gone through seven so far. No other gods. Have no idols. Do not misuse the name of the Lord. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your father and your mother. Don't murder. No adultery. And this morning, no stealing. You know, there's a lot of stealing that's going on in our country. I, I had no idea. I just read a few statistics. You can find them all over the internet. But the National Association for Shoplifting Prevention says that more than $13 billion worth of goods is stolen from retailers each year, which is more than $35 million per day. They also say that there are more than 10 million people 
who have been caught shoplifting in the last five years. And interestingly enough, a large percentage of that loss, they chalk up to employee theft. Estimated 27 million Americans shoplift each year, or one in about 11 to 12 people. 75% of them are adults. Approximately 1 million vehicles are stolen each year in the U.S. One every 33 seconds. My car is not on the list, but I thought you might be interested to know that the number one stolen car in the U.S., it is a 1995 Honda Civic. Hot on its heels is a 91 Accord, followed closely in third place by an 89 Camry. Yeah. Almost 5,000 vehicles were stolen in Denver last year. Music piracy causes 12.5 billion of economic losses every year, according to this one study. Approximately 15 million United States residents have their identities used fraudulently each year with financial losses totaling close to $50 billion. And this is the interesting stat. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce estimates that theft by employees costs American companies 20 to 40 billion dollars per year and that gets passed along to every man and woman who works in america today and uh, they contribute about four hundred dollars per year to cover that few interesting statistics there is a lot of thievery going on in this country and that's just what they know pastor and author john enser tells this story he says when i was a teen i stole a hat and what is worse worse than that i arrived at the store with a wad of cash in my pocket to buy it I stared at the price tag and I thought, hey, why should I spend my money on that? I can get it for nothing. Save my money for something else. As I headed for the door, the store manager stopped me. I suddenly wished that I were dead. The manager saw I was not yet a hardened criminal (laughs) and sent me home with instructions to have my parents call back with the news or he would call the police. So I went home to take my lumps. To this day, I remember what my 18-year-old sister said when she overheard me confessing. How totally embarrassing. I've got a brother who's a thief. She called me a thief. But becoming ashamed of what we are as a result of what we do is a good thing and a necessary part of getting real about guilt. He says if you commit adultery, you're an adulterer. If you lie, you become a liar. I stole I'd become a thief. It led me to my room, weeping and ashamed of myself. But he says, that was good. Painful, but good. And that line is what grabbed me. Painful, but good. It seems to me that if we really understand the heartbeat that is driving these commandments... And the two truths that we have emphasized again and again we too were going to be ashamed, or at least we ought to be ashamed, and I think we ought to be saddened when we break them. Two truths we've talked about. The first one I've mentioned, they are paths to life. God has given them to his people. They were for his people of old. They are for his people now and for all the folks in between, the giving of the commandments in present day. And they're guides for living under his blessing that we might experience life to the fullest in this life, as, as much as that can happen in a fallen world. God gave these commandments to his people. 
to keep them from unnecessary pain and suffering, not to keep them from a good time. That is truth number one, and we've talked quite a bit about that. Truth number two is that when his people believe truth number one, and they live out their lives in obedience to what God has called them to, they become a bold witness for who God is in this fallen world. Their lives become a spotlight that points to God, that gives Him great glory, a great life-giving God. That's, that's the purpose of the commandments, is to, to show us how desperately we need God and a Savior. And then as we live in obedience and under His blessing, it begins to, to show others the same. I think to break any of these commandments really needs to bring us to a point where, where we're sad, that we have we've chosen what is potential for destruction over life in making that choice. And we don't bring positive attention and honor to our awesome God. That really ought to sadness. John Calvin addressed this truth of dishonoring God with his commentary on the Eighth Commandment. Listen to, to what he wrote. He says, God could have easily put it in other ways. He could have said, be careful lest you take any of your neighbor's goods from him. Look out that you don't gain your profit at your fellow man's expenses. Beware not to engage in any violence. But in one word, he said, don't steal. And why? In order that we might regard fraudulent activity, robbery, graft, and all wrong with the greatest abhorrence and be ashamed of cheating anyone. And be horrified, I say, that we are guilty of stealing before God. Thank you, John Calvin. You know, and as I thought about stealing this week, I mean, I haven't thought about stealing this week. I've, I've, that sounded really bad, didn't it? Is that, as I've been contemplating stealing this week, the, the activity of, of stealing, you'll be glad to know that I, I haven't been thinking about stealing anything in particular, it's... Uh, I think the real problem with, with stealing, I've, I've become convinced, is it, is it is the compromised honor and reputation of God that goes on. As is true with any of the breaking of these commandments, when we steal, we compromise His honor. We compromise His reputation as it is experienced in our lives. And there are lots of problems with stealing, of course. One, it's against the laws. That ought to concern us. And the fact that it takes something that belongs to somebody else, that probably ought to concern us as well. But those are lesser motivations for not stealing. The motivation is that God is dishonored through our lives when we steal. For the people of God, His honor and His reputation, as it is seen and experienced in our lives, ought to be the highest motivation in everything that we do, or perhaps we would say when it comes to stealing and everything that we don't do, that needs to motivate us. And so the text that came to mind this week is, uh, is like the last two Sundays, words from Jesus 
It comes from Matthew chapter 6. I'm sure that, that these will be quite familiar words for us. But let's stand and, uh, and read together from the words of our Lord, uh, Matthew chapter 6. Together, here we go. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Oh, indeed it does. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Familiar words, I'm sure, to, to many of us. You know, Jesus is addressing a problem that I think is, is common in the human condition. Worry. Worry stems from a concern for self. You ever struggle with concern for yourself? <laughs> oh, no, that's, that's foreign to my experience. Desire to be comfortable, desire to, to, to have our, our needs met. <sighs> Boy, it is, I think it is a driving force that is, is resident in, in each heart. And I think it's, it's a condition that, quite frankly, can, can lead people to steal. And, and I think it's so deeply rooted in the human heart that, that oftentimes stealing becomes very subtle. And, and we might not even recognize it as such. You'll be happy to know I've never been a thief. I've done a lot of lousy things in my life. But stealing has never been a problem for me. But let me tell you about a conversation that I had with my son Luke this week. This is true confessions before my wife. She doesn't even know this story. Luke and Jessica came over on Thursday night. Sharissa had gone to Costco and had converted from this wedding disc of, of pictures, thousands of wedding pictures. She had printed out, chosen and printed out 
hundreds of them. We have this box of wedding pictures, and she had sort of spread them out on the floor in our room, and they were, they were partially organized. And when Luke came in, he was looking at the pictures, and he was excited, and he said, oh, this is so cool. He said, who did this? And I said, your mother and I. <laughs> now, technically speaking, I did go to Costco with her. Technically speaking, I did help pay for those. We've always pooled our income together. You know, it's not a my money, your money thing. The problem is, that's not what Luke was asking. Luke was not asking, well, where did you have this done? He was not asking, who paid for this? Luke was asking, who cared enough to go to all this work. And I heard that in his voice. And I wanted to be a good dad. (laughs) Immediately, this check in my spirit from the Spirit of God said, that is not true. (laughs) And I said, Luke... The truth is, I had nothing to do with this other than I was at Costco with your mom. She spent like an hour and a half at the photo center choosing pictures and having them printed while I sat on my butt in the food court working on a project for this class I'm taking. He just laughed and said, these are really great. Apparently the fact that his father had become a liar and a thief... Was not of concern to him. (sighs) Man. Fortunately, they have turned out more like their mother than their father. Where did that come from? It's just a little thing. And it was it was just my son. And he seemed to understand. Maybe not. He didn't say, but he did. He just kind of brushed it off. But I have to tell you, that concerned me. I've, I've thought about it off and on, especially as I've been working on this sermon this week. <laughs> Don't steal. Oh, great, great. I'm just a stellar reputation for my congregation once again. Author William Hendricks says, you know, it's, it's what we do in the small issues of life that sets the stage for the bigger issues. He's right. What we do at the copier, in the workplace, on the phone, what we do in front of the mail machine, and I would add, what we say or don't say in a conversation, these are important. They set the stage for how we will respond to greater temptations that will come. So true. And we must remember what we've said 
again and again and again, and I've repeated it for you this morning. These are life-giving commandments, and when we give attention to them and when we obey them, God is greatly glorified. And temptation comes along, and gosh, I wonder where temptation comes from. Comes from the one who hates God and everything that he stands for. I know I've said this to you too many times, but if we somehow think that we are important to the enemy, other than just being used as a pawn in his hands, we are deceived. He doesn't care about us, but he cares about sullying the reputation of God every opportunity he gets. And if he can start to sow those little insignificant seeds in our hearts that turn into small, fairly insignificant activities that are actually in disobedience to the life-giving paths that God has laid out for us, then it's not going to be long before God's reputation is broken and, and, and sullied in our lives. Wow. Jesus said, do not worry about your life. You know what I hate about those words is they are just clear. <laughs> How do you explain away, do not? There's no maybe there. You know, uh, once every seven or eight days, go ahead, have a worry fest. No. Do not worry. Period. But worry is a part of our, our condition. Worry in this context, Jesus is clearly talking about self-preservation, self-care. And it really can take some very subtle forms. Jesus' exhortation is do not be a people who worry. I would take it a step further and suggest that, that we're not to be a people who focus upon ourselves because when we focus upon ourselves, that opens the door to worry and dissatisfaction and preoccupation with what others might think of us, leading us down potentially a path to begin to steal in some small ways in terms of our reputation and what people think and credit for what I did that I didn't really do. You know, I'd be surprised if many of us have an issue with stealing cars. You know, probably none of us have ever robbed a bank. But I wonder how much theft has gone in our lives when we have taken credit for something that really wasn't ours. Pastors do this a ton. Did you know that? They plagiarize all the time. Rick and I were talking about this this morning. You know, there, there's... There's time, Teresa asked me several weeks back some illustration. She said, did you come up with that? And I said, well, yeah, I did. Because I hadn't credited it in, in my sermon. I always try to credit people whose ideas aren't mine. And it's kind of bothered me ever since then. I, I think it was mine. I don't even remember what it was now. But pastors do that a lot. Educators sometimes do that. Taking credit for something that we do not deserve is theft. It is stealing. 
do we have any of those little things that kind of nibble around the edges of our lives? I think the most important words in this text that we've read together, verse 32. Heather, can we look at that verse again? Here we go. Let me read it again. Look closely. For the pagans run after all these things. He's talking about all the things that we pursue in order to preserve our lives and to take care of ourselves. He's talking about kind of the basic uh, necessities of life. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. It's just a powerful verse of comparison. Jesus is saying, don't worry. Don't spend your time fretting about things that, that you don't need. This is what the pagans do. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So let's be clear about a couple of things. Who is Jesus talking to in this text? This is Matthew 6, remember? Sermon on the Mount. Who's Jesus talking to? His disciples. His followers. No doubt there were others who had gathered around, but you remember at the beginning of chapter 5, we're told that Jesus went up on the mountainside and his disciples followed him up there and he began to teach them. I'm sure others gathered as they always did. But the original intent, the original audience was his disciples. They were his followers. So Jesus is saying, your heavenly father knows that you need them. Who are the pagans? Not his followers. Yeah, just a big category of people who they weren't signed on. They weren't his followers. Pagan is a word that, that, that shows up in Scripture. It, uh, it can cross a lot of, of ethnic lines. Pagans. Okay. Followers. Pagans. Now, this is a simple but important discussion that you need to have with your neighbor for just a minute. What advantage do followers of Jesus have over those who are not his followers? Okay? Come on. It's simple, I know. What advantage do followers of Jesus have over non-followers? Okay, you need more time? Simple. Right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What do you think? Someone? What advantage do the followers of Jesus have over those who are not his followers? What's the advantage? Doesn't say that. Doesn't say Holy Spirit either. I don't disagree. What does the verse say? How come? Your heavenly Father knows. Your heavenly Father knows. We fret. We worry. We give ourselves to to growing ulcers. We go down the path of stealing for the sake of reputation and your heavenly father knows all the things that you need. The difference that we have as followers of Jesus from those who are not is God is our heavenly father. Man, you're looking excited about this. It's like ho-hum, God is my father. Come on, friends. The advantage that the followers of Jesus have 
is that they have a relationship with God as Father. Let that sink in for a moment. Probably too familiar for so many of us. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. In other words, your Heavenly Father knows everything that you need. It begs the question, I think, if God is your Heavenly Father, then what exactly do you need in life that He does not provide? Nothing. Nothing. Jesus is telling us that when you are His follower... And if we were to go ahead and lay Romans 8 over the top of that, because we know that we can, Paul uses language of father and children of the father. So Jesus is saying that when you're his follower, when you are his child, what do you need in life in order to be satisfied and fulfilled in this broken world? The answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Do you see then why, why, why stealing, even something that's so small and insignificant as, as maybe just taking partial credit for something, do you see how that's an affront to God? Because in those moments, we're saying to Him, you have not provided. I need this. And you have not given it to me. And it is a, it, it's an affront. It's an insult To a God who takes care of his children excellently. Who takes seriously his role as caregiver. Now, a need versus a want becomes incredibly blurry in this culture of ours. In some cultures, it's real clear. But for us, it's blurry. But I'm going to define a need as something that I will die if I don't have it. I think this this text is is important. Jesus is talking about the basic needs. A need is defined as something that I will die without. And so Jesus is saying your father will keep you alive for as long as he chooses to use you on this earth for his glory. If I don't have it, then I must not need it. And I certainly don't need to steal to get it. Even if I desperately think I need to have a good reputation for something that I haven't done. If I don't have it, then I must not need it. But if I do not have it, and it is a need, then he must be done with me because I'm going to die. Does that make sense? We've got to discern between needs and wants, needs and desires. If I don't have it, and it's a need, then... I must be on my way home to be with the Lord. Paul told the Philippians to live as Christ and to die is gain. And he also told the Philippians, he said, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. I'm always fascinated by that. My God will supply all your needs. It's because his God was their God. He was was personalizing it. Stealing at its most basic sense I think, is an expression of dissatisfaction and or lack of trust with God's care for me as his child. When I take something that doesn't belong to me, I'm expressing a lack of trust in my Father's provision 
for the things that I need. Here's the other thing that really struck me this week as I thought about stealing. God, God is a giver. It is his, it is his nature to give. And the, the flip side of that is, God can never steal because it's all his. He can't steal. Everything that exists, exists because he has given it life. I mean, Scripture is clear about his sovereignty over his world. The psalmist says our God is in his heavens and he does whatever he pleases. It's because it's his world. It's his universe. He can never steal. He's a giver. We've said from the beginning that the Ten Commandments were, were given to the Israelites that they might be a witness. Do not steal is one of those witnesses because God is a God who gives. The people of God ought to be givers, never takers. What a, what a misrepresentation of his character it is. C.S. Lewis wrote that God loves us not because we are lovable, but because he is love. Not because he needs to receive, but because he delights to give. For God so loved the world that he gave. Love gives. It never takes what does not belong to it. Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's interesting that 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 is written in the middle of a letter where Paul is expressing amazement to the believers in Corinth for their generous giving towards the offering that was going to the Jerusalem church. The believers in Jerusalem were experiencing great persecution and great suffering. And so the Corinthians had just, you know, rallied around this and had given generously. Paul says, for you know, you know, you've experienced the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. God's people are not thieves. They're givers. They're not takers. That really hit me this week. When we take anything in life that is not ours to take, we terribly, terribly misrepresent the character of God. And when we cling tightly to stuff that that is ours to give, that too misrepresents the character of our God. To steal is to exalt self. To trust in his provision and to give is to exalt God. Kent Hughes writes that stealing contradicts the generous giving nature of Christianity and it enthrones self as the center of of one's universe. 
One need, one's needs become the driving force behind life. The thief says, I am first and nothing will stand in the way of my pleasure and self-gratification. The essence of true Christian living then is giving as compared to the essence of thievery, which is getting. My brothers and sisters, may God be glorified in our lives as we choose to walk a careful path. This careful path of being a people who who do not steal. The people who trust God in every way to provide for what we need. And how often he provides for what we want. Be a people who walk that path, willing to trust willing to make a statement to, to those who watch us about God's goodness and his faithfulness and our confidence to trust in his care for us as his children. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are faithful. That you look on our lives and you know what we need and you Provide it. That doesn't always take the form that we want, Father. We pray that your spirit would remind us again and again and again, shouting into our heads and our hearts if need be, that we have everything that we need in this life because of who Christ is and what he has done for us, everything that we need to live lives that bring honor and glory to you. Father, you know that we easily forget that the purpose of our living as people of God is not to live comfortable, self-satisfied lives, but to live lives that shine a bright light on your greatness and your glory. Help us to do that faithfully, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. You've probably noticed that in this season of Lent, we talk about the, uh, the Sundays as Sundays that are in Lent versus Sundays of Lent. That's because in the tradition of the church, though the Lenten season as it gains momentum and moves closer to Holy Week, has a little bit more of, of, a, of a solemnity to it, of sort of a focus inward and a, and a thinking about myself in terms of my sinfulness and my mortality, leading us to that, that great celebration of Christ's death and resurrection and victory over sin. In the midst of that come six Sundays. And those Sundays, including Easter Sunday, are always to be a great celebration, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving and praise for the goodness of God. And so we've been incorporating that tradition into the life of Applewood now for, I guess, three or four months, where we ask someone on a communion Sunday to come and to share uh, their story, at least a part of their story, their journey with Christ, and uh, their Thanksgiving for his goodness and his grace to them. And so this morning, our friend Kate Finn is going to come and share her story with you. You want this, Kate? Should I move it? 
So when, when Guy asked me, my first thought was, there's so many things to be thankful for, I don't really know where to start. Um, but when I was thinking about it, really what I love about God is the specific way that he speaks into each one of our lives and the specific way that he um, has spoken to me and in ways that are very meaningful to me. So here's part of my story. Um, I'm very grateful to have grown up in a Christian family. Uh, where I learned early on how to recognize God's voice in my life. That's a consistent and very specific blessing to me to be able to know what God's voice sounds like. So many of you know, right after I graduated from college, I had the awesome opportunity to be in the Peace Corps, which to that point in my life was a life dream of mine. So I felt very, very grateful to be able to do that straight out of college. I loved where I was placed. I had a wonderful host family and um, really enjoyed my experience there. Uh, many of you also know that in 2007, that uh, experience was cut short. I was raped in my village, and um, at that point, my life really came crashing down around me uh, for very obvious reasons. I was, um, felt very alone. I felt very shamed. I felt very guilty. I felt um, just awful, and there was really nothing... There, I was very alone. Um, so that, that was a low. And um, that experience, really what happened to me in my particular experience of that trauma was that I couldn't really focus on anything ahead of the moment. So I got from moment to moment to moment and just kind of barely made it. Um, I found out about a month and a half after that that I was pregnant as a result. Um, and I was really unsure what to do with myself. And I remember very vividly, I have very few memories from that time period, but I remember very vividly sitting down on my bed and thinking, okay, God, what do I do? There's very distinct options in front of me. What do I do? And at that very moment, I heard God's voice um, speaking to me and just very clearly saying, Kate Finn, this is your child. And it was um, a very serious moment and a very somber moment because I heard God speak to me, but in a way it was kind of comical, even in the moment, because I was like, did you just say that? Did that just happen? And I kind of did a double take. I was like, can I, can I get that again? And, and he said it again. And I was like, all right, great, there we go. And that moment has been so pivotal to me and so special to me because in that moment, very specifically, God gave me peace. And God gave me a foundation that I could build from in that moment. So I have been so grateful over all these years that I've never had to question um, that decision. Because that was God's decision, and he has built on that in so many different ways. So that's one thing that I um, just love about God, that he gave me that one moment and that one memory that was so specific to me. So from that, from that moment, I, you know, came home and um, was surrounded by family and friends who have taken care of me and helped me to heal and have loved my daughter and uh, had taken care of us. And another very specific thing, I was very concerned uh, while I was pregnant that I wouldn't bond with my child for very understandable reasons. I, a lot of women under the best circumstances have a hard time, and so I was very concerned about how that would go and very prepared for, you know, a long bonding process. And um, 
when I met Maddie, we were just friends. We were just buddies, and that was such a specific blessing that God did for me that I've also been so grateful for, um, that he didn't have to do, but he did, that um, we, we bonded and we're buddies, and um, we can just love each other so much. Um, and that is a very specific way that God has blessed me. Um, another, another, reason, another way that God has blessed me, there's just a billion, um, is that I, when I left... I mean, it was, it was just awful, right? I, I'm not someone who just ends things and quits and leaves with my tail between my legs, but that's kind of what happened when I left the Peace Corps. I just kind of adiosed and left, left everyone and said, I, I got I to do me right now for understandable reasons. So I just thought in my head, okay, well, you know, maybe someday I'll do a year of service somewhere and finish out that experience so it doesn't feel so incomplete. Or, you know, maybe someday we'll, we'll finish that out. I'm not really sure how. And I just kind of lived with that, and I was like, that's for someday. And then in um, 2010, I met a group of women who were petitioning Peace Corps to make changes in the way that they, that the Peace Corps address sexual violence and volunteers who are affected by sexual violence. And um, as I thought about joining this organization, I thought, you know, I have so much that, that a lot of these women don't have. I had a community of people who... Um, the first thing everyone said to me was, I love you. What do you need? And um, people who have built, built um, so much love and relationship in our lives that I, I really feel like I, I need to join this organization and help them and, and figure out what I can do because not all people who come home from the Peace Corps have that. And they have um, this broken experience but not really the chance to heal from it. So I, I need to add my voice. So... That was an incredible experience to, to lobby Congress and to do all of those things. And it was so de-isolating for me to meet all of these women, many women, hundreds of women, who've been affected in the same way, and to speak out and to create change. And we were really lucky, and we did. We, we passed a law that makes sure that the Peace Corps has this minimum criteria they have to meet and things that they have to do to provide for volunteers. And as that experience kind of came to an end, I was standing there and I was thinking, oh my gosh, God, this is it. I finished my experience. This is complete. This chapter in my life is done. And it's on such a high note. I could never, ever have imagined in a million years that something so awful would end so well. That, um, that I get to add my voice and do the Peace Corps thing in a way I totally didn't expect, but now these other women hopefully will benefit from all of the things that we had to go through. So that was a very specific blessing to me, that God allowed me to finish that experience and to complete it and um, to move on with my life. So that, um, and I have told my story a billion times to different different people, mostly um, to get our law passed, but I've never really been able to thank God for all of the ways that he's spoken into my life. So I'm appreciative of this opportunity because it's really God's story, right? Like he, he did all of those things for me and got to end it. So thank you.